Welcome to episode 10 of The Story of You. Double digits. Kevin, how did that happen? <laughs> I know. I'm suddenly feeling like a little bit older now. <laughs> and even better to market with Roshni Matani, we have today with us the founder of Tickled Media. Now, Tickled Media is a Singapore-headquartered Singapore company behind the Asian Parent and also the Asian Money Guide. They have just raised a round of $6.7 million US dollars in funding. Exciting times ahead, Roshni. Can you tell us, I mean, you know, fundraising in an already extremely competitive environment of media and as a woman, what has that been like? So it's definitely been very interesting and challenging. I think it's, it's challenging in itself to just raise funding. So in total, we've raised around over 10 million. But the last round was definitely the hardest because you're at Series B. It's no longer at a seed stage where you have an idea. Now you have a real proven business model. They want to look at historical data. They want to see if you've been hitting your goals quarter on quarter, month on month, uh, both in terms of financials as well as the size of your community. So we took about three months to, to do the whole fundraise. I planned it out and timed it really properly. I just had a baby about two years ago. So I, it's, ever since I was pregnant, I knew that I would have to go for another fundraise because we wanted to open up more verticals. So while the Asian parent as a business by itself is profitable, but for us to get into more verticals, we definitely needed more capital infusion. We, we, we've already launched Asian Money Guide, but we're launching Hostile Asia at the end of this month. And then we're launching a food and kitchen site as well in the next couple of months. So altogether, we'll have about five media properties. And so for us to be able to invest in those five media properties, we had to raise funding. So about two years ago, I knew I wanted to expand beyond parenting. And that's when I decided that and started to think about how I had to position the company and uh, in order to be able to have an effective fundraise. So I started thinking about fundraising two years before I fundraised. Wow, and a long then, time. Yeah, and then I gave myself about three months to line up all the VCs that I wanted to meet, go out there, have my pitch deck and my financials in order, and uh, do do the do all the pitches in a three week time frame, mm. and then narrow it down from there. Because three months sounds like it's a fairly short fundraising period. Mostly, it's usually I hear six months on the minimum, even as long as a year. Was it just you were well organized? You were mentioning something before we started recording about going into all the meetings by yourself. Was that why it only took three months? So, so the first meeting, I always recommend that founders do it by themselves. It's a good chance for you to test it out and see if you have chemistry with the person. Uh, people are also a lot more forgiving and personable mm. if it's just one-on-one. -on -one. When you have a crew of your people against a crew of their people, <laughs> immediately it feels like a negotiation dance right from the start. Mm -hmm. But when it's one-on-one, -on -one, it's very non-threatening. I generally advise people, and even for ourselves, we went in saying that we want to just get their opinion on how the market is. We want to talk to them about our business model. We never pitched it as a fundraising meeting. So it's but a fundraising. Yeah, but in my head, I knew it was a fundraising <laughs> meeting. So. And, and is it that, you know, I mean, going back to that as one-on-one, -on -one, at the end of the day, would you give advice to people who go and ask for fund, fundraising uh, and go ask for funds? If they're investing in the individual? Not at a Series B level. Okay. So if you're talking about your first three million, yes, it's very at a very individual level. So if you're raising, you know, five million, ten million, it's definitely about the business. In fact, the individual can become a handicap to the business. Okay. But on my end, I felt like I knew the business better than anyone else. I was very confident in understanding the customer, understanding the reader, understanding the technology as well, as well as the finances. So I felt that it would be stronger for them to see a CEO who really knew her business mm. from all aspects versus to just look at the business numbers by itself. 
you talk about the understanding your customer, which is such an important theme, and, mm-hmm. and that's how you built your community. So I want to talk about who is well. The first baby is the Asian parent. Who is the Asian parent target customer? Even though you've hyper localized and mm-hmm. and you know you you have the website in each country in Asia and in their in their own language. Um, who who? But how would you define her? So the Asian uh, the Asian parent user in Singapore, it's a mixture of men and women, especially during the pregnancy stage. We see that men get very involved in the pregnancy journey. Because uh, we don't know anything before it starts. We're <laughs> <laughs> doing our Oops. research. Now we, now, we, now we should try to find out. Yeah. So so when they start off, both men and women are generally as clueless as each other, except that women get obsessed about this, and it's because it's happening to their own body. Mm-hmm. So yeah. so they start reading about it a lot more, and before you know it, their knowledge surpasses a guy's knowledge. And and the gap is so big that generally speaking the guy goes like you know what you handle it because now you know so much more than me but when they start off with they're both at around the same level so that's mm-hmm. quite interesting so who's our target audience our target audience is an asian generally speaking an asian woman so we don't uh, go after the expat audience and we're very clear about it generally she's um, mid-income so in singapore you would be talking about a four-room hdb mom who lives in Sengkang or Fungol. In Indonesia, would be your. You don't just live in Jakarta. You might be living in Bandung. You might be living in Surabaya. And in India, you would be living in one of the big metro cities. So she's very firm about her Asian belief systems, mm-hmm. and she likes her traditional medicine. She likes her her traditional home structure as mm-hmm. well. And she's. It's a joint family. So either she's raising the child with a helper which it happens in Singapore or Taiwan or in Hong Kong, or she's raising the child with her parents or in-laws. So she has a lot of different opinions about the child raising process, and she needs to be able to look at fact versus fiction. Okay, And you've grown this community without advertising in a way mm-hmm. over the past five years from the number is pretty astonishing, I would say. You have a monthly reach of 12 million, and how did you, you know, leap? <laughs> in five years to this big amount number yeah so it's pretty crazy about five years ago was when we did our first round of fundraise you know so when when vertex and and tigris and everyone else invested in us they made it very clear to me that it had to grow exponentially uh not just in terms of revenue but also in terms of the traffic and the users so our aim was we wanted to be able to reach one in three urban asian moms who had internet uh, access in southeast asia so we're reaching about one in four. Mm. Um, so we're very close to hitting our target goal. So we think that by the end of this year, Asian Parent will have community size around 15, 16 million. And we, we did that. We spent, we've, overall in the last five years, we've maybe spent between 10 to 15,000 US in advertising. So not a lot of money. And we've grown the community organically. So the good thing is that once you realize that you have a target audience that works, then you have to make, you treat the first 1,000 people right. So I would meet up with them. I would go for coffees. Oh. I remember the first few users used to invite me for their baby shower party. Wow. And, and I would attend. And if I couldn't attend, I would send them flowers. So I really got to know my customers very intimately, which was very interesting for me because, hey, I started the company as a 25-year-old who had no kids. And then the second thing was that while I was a Singaporean and I grew up in Singapore, I didn't necessarily always understand the local heartbeat intimately. Mm-hmm. And so it was to, to go into a family home who, you know, Mandarin was their first predominant speaking language and not English. And to understand their culture and their lifestyle was, uh, was very jarring for me. Mm-hmm. But I think it really helped that I was not a mom because I was completely non-judgmental. 
So because I wasn't the target audience, meaning I wasn't a Mandarin speaking mom, I, you know, I, I had no preconceived notions uh, or perception. And I was able to really look at data and figure out what is it that people like. And I would go for meetings and I would meet some of my own friends who were more expat type women uh, living in Singapore with kids. And they would be like, oh, your content is shit. I don't get it. Really? It, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't resonate with it or you know, mm-hmm. your advice is wrong. And, you know, so I would, I would constantly feel torn because I'm like, no, but my users are telling me this is exactly what they want. Yeah. So so it was it was this constant struggle between listening to myself, my social circle, and and listening to what the customers wanted. How, like, how has it changed since you've become a mother? So... Um, Have you gotten a little bit more <laughs> judgmental about the, the... No, I'm just joking. Yeah, so, so of course, it's, it's been very interesting because I've been able to add more weight into some of the content pieces or even the community. So now I'm actually part of my community. Okay, um, you're so one go, of them. I'm one of them. So I now I give feedback to the content team when I see something that's rubbish mm. um, or if I attend... And, and I'm able to attend all these events. So we do a lot of baby events and kids events. And so me and my daughter, now we participate in these events. I no longer host it. So it's, it's very interesting to see it from the user point of view. So I'm able to give better advice. Like, so for example, our app, if you look at our app, you'll notice that we have something called the wheel. And the wheel gives you a day-by-day update about your child. But the way it used to be before was that the wheel content was written uh, very prescriptive. So it would tell you like, your baby is three months old today. This is the development yeah. of your child. Yeah. Uh, but so when I be- so it was very factual. But when I became a mom, I had the team rewrite it from the baby's point of view to the mom. Ah, okay. so, okay. Exactly. So like, mommy, right now I'm three months old and I, you know, I'm looking at your beautiful eyes and I think it looks great. And I think you should start showing me these kinds of things and playing these sort of activities with me. And I miss you and I love you. Don't forget to hug me when you come home from work. <laughs> How cute. Okay. So, so it became That's a lot nice. more personal because I was like, what do I want from my child? I wanted to follow up on this media content angle with how you generated your first, how you generated momentum to begin with. I think a lot of people almost dream about doing what you're doing, where they they start something. As you said, you were 25. Off screen, you said you were messing around for a little while, and then suddenly it gathers momentum, and it's now a company where you can pay for your rent, you can support a a family. How do you get from A to B? (laughs) Because a lot of people get to A. It's not that, it's actually really easy to get to A. The getting to the B part is the hard part. Oh, uh, so, you know, I, yeah, the first three years were, were very interesting. I, I had zero clue what I was doing. I had to learn so many things from running a business to HR to, to just understanding whether customers would be willing to pay for your business as well. So the first three years was really experimental. And then trying to take it out of Singapore into another market, I took it into Malaysia and failed dramatically <laughs> and then it was like should I still continue with this or should I pull the plug so when I look at all my numbers in the first three years and I look at my uh, even my investor decks I'm very grateful to my early investors for actually believing in me <laughs> and supporting me because I'm not sure I would have believed in myself or supported myself when I look at it from a VC perspective but I think that what they saw was passion and I think it helped that the first two years I didn't take a salary mm-hmm. so they knew that my opportunity cost of doing this was really high and if you look at my personality or my uh, my temperament, I don't give up. 
Um, so I'm someone who I will I will win because I want to win. I like winning, um, <laughs> and I will not sleep. I will not eat until I win. So I think okay, that we were investing in my personality versus the business. We were they were like Roshni will somehow make this work. No, so you know, obviously, first three years are hard. You talk about ups, you know, like all these things you face. So yeah, okay, your person is. Are you saying that that grit and personality that you have to win? That's what helped you overcome. Absolutely, and now I've uh, between Darius and me, we've invested in about twenty-five or twenty-six startups, and we've we've realized that the startups that do the best, yes, maybe ten percent of startups is because of the idea, and it, you know it's it's a great idea and a great opportunity that has been overlooked. But ninety percent of the time, it's about the startup's temperament and the personality of the founder and the founding team. So if they have tenacity and they have grit. They're going to somehow make it work, and I think that's the most important factor. You were also mentioning that eventually a company hits a certain point where you have to question whether or not you want to be a startup anymore, which I found to be quite interesting. So I'm just curious what what you think about eventually moving into I don't know what you call it a more, more mature sounds negative, but more mature company. So I think oh, we embody and imbibe the vibes of a tech startup. Um, okay. So first of all, we're a tech media company. So when we when we talk about ourselves, we, we don't ref- necessarily refer to ourselves as a startup. So we always say we're a media tech company in the publishing space where we under- we have a content and community site for women. But our culture is quite startup-like, but we don't always think of ourselves as a startup. So while while I say a culture of a startup-like culture, it's, it's nimble, it's agile, it tries to grow 10x. But the moment you know what your business model is, I don't think you're a startup anymore. So we have a regular business model. We know exactly how we're making money. We have a playbook where we know how to open up and launch a new portal or launch a new country very easily. Mm-hmm. Everything is very prescriptive. I can give my playbook to an intern and I can be assured that in two months later, I'm going to have a new country opened up. Okay. So, so I think the moment you have all of these things already documented and you've done it multiple times, so we've done it 13 different times. And you know, each time it just gets better, more faster, more efficient then I don't think you're a startup anymore because it's much more predictable. So by that logic, a company like Carousel is no longer a startup, no, even yeah. though we in the media call them a startup. Exactly. Okay. And can you tell me, I know you do a lot of independent market research on mm-hmm. Asian women, Asian moms. What are, the, what are some of the key findings that you've, that you've got over the past couple of years? And have there been some like really alarming results that you would like to share with us? Yes, it's really quite interesting. First of all, Asia is it's always used as a catch-all phrase, right, to represent all Asian women. But we're so different. You know, we're three billion of us around the world. Something like that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, slightly less. So two billion Asian women. And each one of us are different. An Indian woman and a Chinese woman, half a billion each completely different personalities mm-hmm. and also an Indian woman from Delhi and an Indian woman from Mumbai again very, very different from each yeah. other yeah. so there's no one type of Asian women but I do think that there are Asian values and okay. these Asian values are pretty much the same across all markets Asian value of family family first over career over over husband over spouse your children are number one mm-hmm. that happens in every Asian culture the belief of co-sleeping with your kids. Asian women are much more uh, predisposed to sleeping with their kids. Uh, they're much more predisposed to breastfeeding as well. So anything, uh, so 
we we've coined this term kangaroo parenting, yes, where she brings you very close to. Uh, she she likes to carry her child. She likes to hold her child very close to her, hug her child, uh, sayang her child. Yeah. But at the same time, you know she she is a little bit of a tiger mom as well. So she's not a dolphin parent, which is like go and let my child swim and do whatever they want and let's just play. She doesn't want to be her child's best friend. She wants to be her child's mother, but she wants to have a good relationship with her child. So there's uh, that; those are similarities. Uh, whether you're an Indian mom, whether you're a Chinese mom, whether you're an uh, Indonesian mom. Now the differences come in where some cultures focus a little bit more on academia. Mm-hmm. So in Singapore, it's a little bit more academic focus. Singapore also, we don't like to play with our kids as much. Mm-hmm. So for example, we have a lot of our users who say that Play-Doh is supposed to be done in school and not at home because it creates mess. That's understandable. It is quite messy. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's also it, edible. Yeah. But you a can, Filipino mom actually watches how to make play doh and creates play doh at home with yeah. her kids. It's it's actually better made homemade if you get the right recipe. Yeah, but <laughs> thank you for the tip. <laughs> I will now make my own play doh. But I, I, so in that sense, we're a little bit different. We're so a Singapore mom and a Filipino mom. Okay. Yeah. And so, which one are you? Tiger, dolphin, kangaroo combination. So I'm. Uh, so I'm very particular when it comes to learning and academia. And I also really watch how my child's behavior is like. So for example, she hates uh, music and she hates ballet and she hates dance. So we, while we signed her up for some of these classes, very early on we realized, oh my God, she hates ballet. This is so funny. So we sent her for three or four classes, but she didn't like it. So we stopped. Okay. Uh, but then I realized that she really likes gym and she, um, she loves art in class, art class. So we sent her for more of those. Okay. So I really observe what she's doing and what she enjoys. And then you listen to your child. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about, I find it really interesting that you moved to Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And I want to, given that, you know, your company was started and is headquartered in Singapore, like what made you do, make you move to Indonesia? What, what was the epiphany that happened? So we're sitting here in Singapore. It's easy to live in a bubble. Uh, everything about our life is perfect, right? That's why we're nicknamed the Disneyland with the death penalty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, this, this, this country is amazing and it, it makes you complacent and you don't realize the opportunity that's sitting right next to you. One hour flight away and we have a giant nation uh, of 270 million people, most of whom practice the same religion and speak the same language. And we're sitting here with 7 million people cribbing about our lives uh, when there are 270 million people who are willing to do anything to make it work. So you can never understand Indonesia unless you're in Indonesia. The nuances between each of the cultures, someone in Makassar or someone in um, Surabaya is so different from someone in Jakarta. Was the move about getting outside your comfort zone and also a business decision because the market is so large in Indonesia? So it was primarily a business decision. I knew that I would either move to uh, India or I would move to Indonesia because great, it's nice to be able to be top of your game in a population of 7 million, but that wasn't exciting enough. Um, So it was either go after India where it's 1.1 billion or you go after Indonesia. Uh, Whereas, so Indonesia felt like a no-brainer for me because it was just one hour away from Singapore. So I would be able to have easy access to headquarter when I needed to. But at the same time, it was also about getting out of my comfort zone because I realized that I became very complacent. And, you know, as a true born bred Singaporean, uh, you know, I'm a champion complainer. 
Uh, <laughs> and I needed to get out of this perfect bubble to realize that how good my life was in Singapore okay. and also the opportunities that the developing markets around us offer. But you, you, you kind of still travel a lot here and you have to come here for work. So yeah. So I effectively run two households. So I have my Singapore home and I'm set up completely in Singapore. So if I jump on and off flights the way people take buses and I, I don't travel with baggage, nothing, just my handbag, I, sometimes I'm not even sure where I'll be the next day. Okay. I, I would argue for Singaporean entrepreneurs looking to get into startups or media or start a new company, that's actually a pretty distinct advantage is being able to move around like that and manage learning about Bangkok or Jakarta while also being able to have your home in Singapore and, and have the, the home base. That's the still, anchor is the here. anchor. The anchor. So for me, anchor is where my daughter is and my daughter goes to school in Jakarta. So anchor, a home is Jakarta. Okay. And I want to now, now you've branched out, uh, you know, you've started Asian Money Guide, so you're not focusing on moms and parenting, not just that. But I, I also, I'm curious, why create a financial guide targeted at women? I mean, it's 2018, right? Women should kind of know about finance and people that women are educated. Do we need such targeted, segmented platforms? So I do think that in uh, developed markets, maybe the need is far less because there's a lot more gender parity, there's a lot of equality. You know, in Singapore, for example, 51% of the graduates are women. So we have more women graduates than men get graduates. So I don't, I think the need in markets like Singapore is far less. But if you're looking at the rest of Southeast Asia, there is a complete need for basic financial 101. And the reason that we skew more women than men is because women think about money issues a little differently from guys. So it's a little bit more practical in some of these other Southeast Asian markets. So it's, for example, should I give a 13th month bonus to my helper? Mm-hmm. Um, or okay. how much school pocket money should I give my kids? Or how, how much should I pay my mom to babysit my kids? So it's sometimes a little bit more practical. Pay money. your mom. Yeah. So for example, a lot of Southeast Asians, they give their moms a, 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 a salary or they give their moms a token every okay. month to take care of their children instead of having sending their kids to preschool okay. or instead of having a helper. Okay. So how much money should I give my mom for doing this? And so, so we create indexes and guides for them so that it becomes a very... So it's something that she doesn't have to spend half a day thinking about, should I give a 13th month bonus to my helper or not? She just goes here, Googles it, finds it, gets the answer, is able to move on with her life. What's what's the business logic for expanding into, you earlier, I think you said five properties is the goal by the end of the year. What's mm-hmm. As the CEO, what's the logic between, instead of just growing Asia Parent to have 500 million readers, What's the logic for having five different properties? Firstly, moms only make up 10 to 25% of a, of a woman's population. So only 10 to 25% actually become young moms with kids from zero to 10. A lot of women choose to never get married or have children. Mm. So while you're in the circle, you think that everyone has kids. But if you look at the data and the consensus, you'll realize that not that many people have children. Mm. And then, of course, when your kids are above the age of 9 or 10, you really don't want to... You're not just a mom. You There's so much more to your life. And your kids are kind of adolescents. And you, you let them figure it out. And mm. you, know, you start looking at some of your other interests and activities. So Asian Money Guide skews slightly older. So that's for women who are generally 30 to 50. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then we decided that we also needed to skew a little younger. So end of this month, we launched Her Style Asia, which is looking at millennial punk rock 
style looking nice. at it's music. Really specific. Okay. Um, so so it's the skater girl culture. It's the underground culture. It's a rebel with a cause. Um, so that's launching. So that's going slightly younger. And now those your your the the style guide and the and the Asia parent are now hitting the same age group. Uh, no, so the Asian parent, she's generally between twenty five to thirty five. Okay. And um, she's a millennial parent. Basically. She's a millennial parent, yeah. but she's still a mom, and her life is slightly different. So she doesn't have as much free time. Okay. Uh, and she doesn't really care about fashion as much because really? uh, well, I well maybe not punk rock fashion, but <laughs> yeah, but you know, she, uh, I mean, fashion is important to her, but not as important as keeping her child healthy, alive, smart. So it's a second priority. But for a woman who's in 18 to 30 and she doesn't have kids, fashion is a That's much true. bigger priority in That's her life. True. And we're not just looking at fashion though, we're looking at style. So what's your style? What's your voice? So it, it might not just be about the clothes that you wear, but it might be about issues you care about. So for example, you might care about global warming or you might care about LGBTQ. And so we cover topics like that and issues like that. And then when you talk about that, like, you know, because they, they care about style, but also with purpose. And mm-hmm. so this whole thing about brands that, you know, this sustainable fashion, and I mean, is that going to be a big theme? In Absolutely. The, so. so it's not your traditional uh, her world, simply her yeah. type Clio, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's really about going for um, her voice, her purpose uh, and her style. And then I want to ask about, because it's just, I want to ask about food because I love food. What's mm-hmm. what's the food one going to be about? <laughs> so we're we're focusing on Asian food, Asian recipes from your grandmother's kitchen. Oh my okay, god! Okay, so bring them down. You have Asian a meal. Food. You have a meal subscriber. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm so into <laughs> that as well. Food. <laughs> and, um, so you know, you seem to be doing. You're, you're opening multiple platforms, hyper localization, yet segmented content seems to mm-hmm. be the way you're going, and also local language. Are we gonna just? Is this is this the future of succeeding in tech media or media tech as you call it? Further personalization, localization, and where articles and content are created for specific avatars, not just markets. Markets. Absolutely. So the but the avatars uh, must be big enough. So we don't look at it just as a hyper local content, but we look at it as community. I think the heart and the uh, the way to succeed for any media organization is to create communities and tribes. And so what we've done is we've created the mommy tribe and now we've created the women in finance. And even in Asian Money Guide, we have different tribes of women. So we have women who care about discounts and coupons and savings. Mm. We have women who care about one-on-one knowledge. We have women who care about angel investing. So these are women who have you know a few hundred thousand or a few million dollars and they want to actually invest in companies or, or buy properties. So we, sub- we segment them into different tribes. Um, and I think that it's, so it's not just about hyper-localization, but it's really about finding tribes and growing the tribe and community. If we sit down a year from now and have this conversation again, what do you hope you've accomplished in your telling us? I, well, I hope that in terms of the community size that we'll at least be reaching about 100 million users or 100 million Asian women across the different five uh, genre, five vertical. Uh, I would like to hope that I've impacted the life of women and inspired them, that there is a tribe and community and they don't have to feel like they're judged or they don't have to feel alone. So I'd like to think that we've created a very supportive community of 100 million Asian women. What's the big vision of Tickled Media? What's the big vision? So I feel, oh, <laughs> this is such a... I had to think about it. Loaded, uh, <laughs> no, I, so ultimately I care a lot about the media industry and I care a lot about the women in 
women gender, sorry, no offense. <laughs> um, offended. You know, I'd like to marry the two. Um, media companies are, we are we're hostage right now to Facebook, to Google, to, to other platforms. So, you know, we're, we're under siege, right? Our media revenues are mm-hmm. dropping, uh, we're struggling. So I want to prove that Asia can have profitable and good biz- uh, media businesses that are purely media, mm-hmm. that is independent, not owned by a, a government, not influenced by billionaire fund families able to be profitable able to be the voice of the population and yeah and that's, connect people that's brilliant that's a big vision that yeah. you okay one what is <clears throat> what's the one piece of advice you would give aspiring female entrepreneurs especially those in the very crowded space of content why are why are you running a media company i think you need to ask yourself that question it's very hard to grow and uh, build a media company if it's about because you have a voice and you want to share your thoughts and ideas then maybe it makes sense to be an influencer or it makes sense to um, you know be a blogger a youtuber or go and work as a, a journalist or a stringer in a media bigger media company so ask yourself why are you doing this and if it's because there's a market gap in what you're doing then go ahead and do so but if you're just another voice in a very crowded space you know go and join another company the media is a very tough industry to be in so really question why you're doing this that's great advice thank you so much roshni thanks roshni thanks for joining us today on the pod thank you double digits double digits <laughs> what's double digits <laughs> <laughs> the 10th uh, episode, episode. <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>